Well, good morning. As, as Pete mentioned already, it's that time of the calendar year again in which, as a church, we intentionally focus our hearts on this season of Advent. And for those of you who aren't, you know, familiar with Advent, maybe you've only really seen or experienced Advent in the cultural sense of, like, counting down the days until you get to open the presents, right? Counting down the days until Christmas. You should know that the word Advent itself comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival, and it signifies the waiting and longing of anticipation of the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. So immediately after sin enters the world, a promise is made to Adam and Eve in the garden, a promise of redemption, restoration, a promise of an end to the curse, and a promise that it would come to an end by the work of a person. His work would do away with sin and suffering and death once for all. And so throughout Israel's history, they longed for this promised one. Their prophets cried out concerning him. Their people waited for hundreds of years. And so we prepare our hearts for worship at Christmas as we all also realize, we recognize our need for Christ. We come before him with a similar longing. But it's precisely this need for Christ that Advent that also shapes us as a church in a different kind of way, because as we identify with those who waited expectantly for this incarnation, this moment that God became flesh and dwelled among us, the, the moment that Jesus came to save us from our central problem, we identify specifically because we continue to wait for Advent as they did. That is to say, the first Advent has come. There's no more waiting for that. God sent His Son. Light broke into darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. And yet, there's still darkness. The people of God still wait for Christ to come again, and as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, make everything sad come untrue. You know, there's this time still to come, a future hope, a second advent, in which God's people are still longing, waiting, Remembering the longing of God's people for the first Advent as we wait for Christmas Day and the celebration of His coming. And that gives us hope for an expectation of His second coming. As our denomination statement of faith puts it, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. This is why we find ourselves in Revelation this year. And this is why we're continuing in Revelation through Advent, to see our blessed hope, to live with this eager anticipation that Jesus will indeed come again, and to be motivated by this hope into a life that proclaims the gospel to the world around us, proclaims the gospel here in Crystal in the Minneapolis area, proclaims the gospel to our friends and neighbors and co-workers who don't believe, proclaims the gospel to those who are even the most skeptical of the Christian faith. And yet we find ourselves often not living with that kind of expectation related to Christ's second coming. See, I think it's easy to a degree for us as a church, for us as Christians, to uh, wait with expectation for Christmas, right? To have, to have kind of that expectancy of Christmas Advent because we're surrounded by friends and family in this season. There's this you know, even broad popular understanding of light penetrating darkness and warmth and peace 
is this theme. So it's easy for us to have this sort of anticipation for Advent at Christmas. But while we're focusing on preparing our hearts for worship at Christmas, we often do that without much thought to being prepared for the Advent that's yet to come. What do I mean by that? Well, like anything else in life, and listen to me now, because this really hits at the center of where we're going. If you're truly going to be prepared for the coming or the arrival of something, anything, if you're truly waiting with an eager longing for something to arrive, whatever that thing is, you actually have to see your need for it. Right? Like, you won't long for it if you don't see your need. You won't care. It's it's very possible. It's like someone might legitimately have a deep need for something that's very specific. The need might be very real, but they don't realize it. So when the thing they need shows up, they're unimpressed. They kind of shrug it off, just move along. They don't really see it. And and maybe other people around them are preparing themselves by obtaining this, this thing. They don't really see their need for it until maybe it's too late. Jesus told the parable, he told a story about this actually in the gospel according to Matthew. It's known as the parable of the ten, ten bridesmaids. Okay? And in this story, uh, Jesus talks about this bridegroom, a groom, in, in the wedding scenario called the bridegroom. He's off preparing his place for the bride while the bride and the wedding party were at the bride's house, kind of waiting for him. And what you have to understand is, in order to understand Jesus' story, you have to be familiar somewhat with the customs of first century Palestinian weddings. In first century Palestine, it was often customary for the groom to do this, to, to ready his place for not just the bride to come and live with him because now they will be married under God, but for feasting and celebration when the wedding party arrives there. So he's off preparing his place, and then he would come and call out to his bride, and there would be a processional through the streets, often at night, to the bridegroom's home, a big party through the streets. They would arrive at the home... And there'd be feasting and celebration. There'd be a party that could oftentimes last even for days. And uh, that processional would happen often at night. The wedding party would have oil lamps to light up their way through the streets at night. All a part of the celebration. But in the story that Jesus tells, three things are happening. First of all, for reasons unknown to the reader and seemingly to the wedding party, the bridegroom is delayed. He has not come yet. He's promised he'll come, but he hasn't yet. Okay, second, that delay has been so long, that wait for the coming of the bridegroom has been so long that the wedding party has all fallen asleep. Now, nothing negative really is attributed to the bridesmaids for sleep necessarily. It just kind of signifies how long the wait has been. It's been a significant amount of time. But third, perhaps sleeping does seem to have been the wrong choice for at least five of the bridegroom, five of the bridesmaids. Remember, there's ten, right? But five of them are unprepared. They have no oil for their lamps. They apparently didn't think the coming of the bridegroom was as apparent as the others, or they didn't really think they needed to be prepared for his coming because they didn't prepare. So they didn't see their need to be prepared while they had the opportunity. That's the idea. So what happens? Well, Jesus tells us the bridegroom finally arrives. He calls out. Everybody wakes out of their sleep. And the five unprepared bridesmaids start panicking. 
uh, begging the other five bridesmaids for their oil. But we come to find that preparation is not transferable. There's only enough oil for each person. So you can't, you can't actually prepare for someone else. Each person is responsible in terms of this preparation. And so this, the five unprepared didn't see their need for preparation when they had the opportunity. But now the, the opportunity has come and gone. They missed the processional through the streets. But finally, in darkness, they find their way to the bridegroom's house, getting the oil too late. But the door is shut. And they say, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And the bridegroom replies, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus ends this by saying, Watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour. He's saying, listen, you, the bridegroom is me, Jesus says, and you can't prepare for my coming unless you see your need for me. Unless you understand your need to be prepared. If you understood your need for me, you'd be prepared for my coming. You'd be ready when the time came. You'd be ready uh, by the end of your life. But each one must be prepared. And that's precisely what we find in Revelation chapter 6. We see this repeated theme of something coming on this first Sunday of Advent. But it's actually not the second coming. It's not the second advent of Christ Himself, but rather the coming of various judgments upon humanity that show us our need for the coming of Christ. And they show us our need for Christ over and over and over again. They show us the reason why, as the people of God, we should be in this season not just celebrating the first advent, but longing for the second. And this text begins with what I'm calling the repeated rejoinder of verse 1. So look there with me. Eyes on verse 1 as we begin. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. So if you remember from last week, Paul Burr laid this out for us so well. So thankful for him him stepping into the pulpit. But John, the author of Revelation, experiences something of an Advent moment in chapter 5. A moment of longing and anticipation because there's the scroll with seven seals on it that's in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne, the Almighty. And John's waiting, longing in great anticipation for the seal to be opened. But there's nobody under heaven, in heaven, or on earth, or under heaven, who's able to open the scroll or look into it. And so John weeps loudly because nobody's found worthy. He's longing to see this decree of God, and there's no one who's able to open it. He weeps loudly because he wants the scroll opened. He wants the decree of God carried out. And one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And so the waiting is over. And the time has now come in chapter 6. The Lamb begins opening these seven seals, and with the first four we see this, this repeated rejoinder that starts each section. Come, come. Four different times, come, come. But a few, a few quick words about this before we jump into the rest of the chapter and see how it instructs us and why this is so important, I think specifically during this time of year. What does this imagery mean, you might be wondering, like these seals? How does it relate to the rest of Revelation? Like those are important questions. 
all right, for us to consider. And as we'll see together, see, throughout Revelation, you have these seven seals that give way into seven trumpets that later give way into seven bowls. I don't want to confuse us, but just hear me out. All of these things have to do with various judgments from God in some way or another. But I'm not going to say a lot about, about how they relate to one another structurally just yet. And there's a reason for that. See, I think sometimes it's very easy to read, especially Revelation, in a way that imposes an outside structure onto the text. Okay, that is to say, I've often seen various interpretations begin with the structure of what these things mean. So the first few sermons on Revelation is unpacking this big theological structure, and then we work our way through the text so that we can show where everything kind of fits in our structure. And I think that's unfortunate and really backwards. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be teaching a structure and then reading the text into the structure. We should read the text with the aim of getting at what the original author is saying to the original audience from within the genre of the book that's being written, and from that text then see how all things are working together. So I do think that these things will work together in various ways, but but please remember as we go, apocalyptic literature, first century, that's what this is, it's first century apocalyptic literature. We've talked a lot so far, Ben's talked about it, Paul, I have, right? First century apocalyptic literature is very foreign to our ears. So what we have to remember is it wasn't ever expected to have some kind of a watertight structure. It's very difficult, remarkably difficult, to read Revelation and come up with these kind of watertight, well, this is section one, and this is section two, and this is section three, and, and that's because of the kind of writing it is. It's apocalyptic. It's very difficult to try to make metaphors in this book walk perfectly on all fours. can't really do it. A perfect example of this is the scroll itself here in chapter 6 because you might say, well, hang on a minute. How can you open a scroll until all the seals are open? So here you have this, imagine a tightly rolled papyrus with seven seals along the scroll. You can't open the thing until every single seal is broken. And yet here we seem to have a seal broken. Part of the scroll is opened. Another seal broken. More of the scroll is revealed. But of course that's not how scrolls work in the first century. And I've heard various people say, well, that's because the seal probably had something written on it that gave gave you an indication of what... No, I mean, that's just not how it worked. Part of the scroll is revealed because it's apocalyptic literature, and that's how many of these metaphors work. Okay, so what does it it reveal to us? Well, this morning we're going to see our need for Advent. Here's our, our organizational sentence for our outline, okay? We're going to see our need for Advent by recognizing three past, present, and future realities. I'm going to say that again. If you're taking notes, this is kind of the structure of our, of our text. We're going to see our need for Advent by recognizing three past, present, and future realities. So these are three realities, all of them pertaining to what's happened in the first century, what's happening now in the present, what's happened since and now and what will happen in the future. Hang with me because I think the payoff's going to be huge. So first we need to see our need for Advent and recognizing reality number one, the depth of human frailty and depravity. We need to see our need for Advent by recognizing the depth of human frailty and depravity. And we see that reality in verses 1 through 8 where we see these four riders. They're known widely today as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Most people who are students of 
popular culture will recognize that title, and we have to ask the question, who are these four horsemen of the apocalypse exactly? What do they signify? Well, let's take each one in turn, because I think each one gives us a unique picture of our need for Christ, the depth of human frailty, the depth of human depravity. So verses 1 and 2. First, this repeated rejoinder. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures say with a a voice like thunder, Come. So some people think the four living creatures are addressing John, and they're saying, Come and see what's about to happen. That's a minority view. I don't think that's the case. I think in all of these first four in which a rider comes on the scene, right before them, the instruction is given from the four living creatures, a command to the rider saying, come, and then the rider comes. I think it demonstrates God's sovereignty over all of this. Just keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, Verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So, who's the rider on the white horse? That is a very good question. One that I go back and forth on, actually, um, quite a bit. So some people take this rider on the white horse to be the Antichrist, one who comes like Christ, um, appearing in a similar way that Christ will appear later on in the book, but just as an imposter looking to draw people away. I have a hard time with that view. I think it's, it seems kind of contrived in the sense that nothing here tells us anything about the rider as the Antichrist. And there's actually zero imagery in the rest of Revelation that would make me... I mean, he's never on a white horse. Uh, this kind of imagery is never applied to him. So I, th- I tend to think that's one of the examples of what can happen when we kind of force the reading of a text into an outside structure. I don't think that this is the Antichrist. Uh, certainly read different viewpoints for yourselves. Others see this rider on the white horse as Christ himself. And I have to say, not only do I think there's probably a much better reason to interpret it that way, as Jesus is spoken of in Revelation as being a rider on a white horse in chapter 19, but this would then also make a really nice and tidy Advent sermon for me this morning, wouldn't it? Um, The voice of one of the four living creatures yelling, Come! And Jesus coming, referring to his first Advent. His work on the cross and his resurrection power that then proclaims the gospel to all of the nations. And that's how this is often interpreted. It's a picture of what Jesus means in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 27 when he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there are some who say that this picture of the white horse is an image of exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. I've actually held to this view. And when I kind of put the outline together and we had this fall on the first Sunday of Advent, that's how a few months ago I intended to preach this on the first Sunday of Advent. But sometimes when you're preaching through a text and you're doing your own study, you come to change your view. And I've, I'm no longer really convinced by this. I, I, I go back and forth. But I think what we're dealing with in all four of these riders, these first four seals, are various judgments, and each judgment is a picture of the human condition. So this first one seems to me to represent military conquest as I read the text. Um, Why not Jesus? Well, first it's common, it's quite common in biblical literature, especially in apocalyptic literature, for various symbols to be, like a white horse, to be used differently. For instance, 
Um, this is kind of borrowed imagery from the book of Zechariah, but if you, and I don't want to get into that too much, but if you read Zechariah's uh, story on the four horsemen there, they're di- kind of different colors, they mean different things, right? So symbols like this can be taken differently, but, but also, more importantly for me, I think there's a reason that Jesus is identified the way he is in chapter 19. Like the context is so different, the imagery is so different that I think the point is to say like, so here's military conquest, That brings an awful lot of death in its wake. But then we have a final conquest, a final victory. But this time, the rider on that horse, that white horse, is Jesus himself. So here in chapter 6, the symbolism, the occasion is so different from 19 that I think the context best fits with the reality of what Jesus has already said, that wars and rumors of wars would be a sign of judgment. They're a picture of human depravity and judgment. And I'm going to have more to say on, okay, so, but which wars, win wars, you know, like, which ones? But, okay, we're going to have more to say, but let's keep moving forward. What's the second seal? Look at verses 3 and 4. First we see the repeated rejoinder, and then another rider. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So while the first horse showed us war, military conquest, the second seal shows us something more like civil unrest. This rider on the bright red horse is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. While I certainly think wars, rumors of wars, would fit into that text as well, I think the primary point instead focuses on the reality that left to ourselves... Humanity will simply destroy one another. That's the level of evil. That's the level of conflict that we see from the midst of humanity. In other words, I think this text indicates that throughout human history, there's been something of a restraint that God has imposed upon humanity that keeps us, to an extent, of wiping each other out entirely. But what would happen if God removed his hand from that equation and just allowed the human heart to lash out in all of its capability of evil. It reminds me of a novel written by Stephen King called Needful Things about Satan moving into a small town in uh, northeast USA and kind of putting various objects in various places and just stepping back and watching humans destroy themselves. In the end, when they say, you did this, he says, don't blame me. I just put those things there and you all destroyed each other. The difference here, so it's a book about human nature. The difference here is it's God sort of removes his, the grace of, of restraint. And, and quite frankly, that's a frightening thing to think about, this kind of civil unrest. But I do think it's what the seal is picturing for us. So military conquest, civil unrest, and now thirdly, famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The idea here is that, I think, a quart of wheat would feed one person in the first century. But a day's wages should feed an entire family. And an entire family, at this time in history, in this location, would have been quite large, I mean... 8, 10, 12, maybe more people. The idea is there's enough food for one person, but that the rest go hungry. Or, 
You could feed more of your family with barley. It's not nutritious. It's cheaper. It doesn't really meet everyone's needs, but people are in want and people are getting sick from this famine. They're dying. The idea is what would happen if there's just not, not enough food left? Many areas of the world don't have to ask that question. They actually experience it. And society in the Western world seems to be so fragile these days that uh, it's not hard to imagine these times visiting the Western world too. Maybe not because of drought, although that's a problem too in various parts of the world, but because of what we just looked at, civil unrest, a disruption to society. What happens if there's no longer food on the shelves, right? That's not hard to imagine. In fact, it is a consequence of the fall, but even more frailty and depravity yet is seen in this fourth seal of death itself, verses 7 and 8. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living, uh, fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So we see sword, that military conquest. We see famine. We see pestilence, sickness, disease. This rider is described in ways that's even meant to look like death. He, he's meant to appear like death. It reminds me of like the Nazgul riders from uh, Lord of the Rings, right? They're meant to appear like death. They come to kill. And death is personified here. It's demonic. It has the very face of evil. It's shown to be the ultimate enemy. Killing with war, civil unrest, famine, and even disease. And in all these pictures, we should immediately be confronted as to why it's so significant for us to long for what's next, for us to long for what's to come. How long, O Lord, should be our cry in reading these passages? Because on the one hand, this is what life was like in a very specific way for these first century Christians. Military conquest and the ripple effects of that military conquest upon the land itself in terms of famine and disease and all of those things, was very real in the first century. It would have been very difficult, I think, for first century readers not to imagine Titus marching into, not Titus, but a, a long time ago, marching into Rome in 69 AD, 68 AD, and then marching out successfully back into Rome, probably on a white horse, and in his wake leaving all kinds of chaos and destruction to say nothing of the military conquest that sought to advance the imperial cult that threatened the lives of Christians and wreaked havoc in such a way that I think, again, would have been nearly impossible for first century Christians to avoid reading in John's words. We can't dehistoricize the text uh, here. These are the things that are happening in a first century world. This pertains to first century events. At the same time, I would say that it pertains to the present. It actually pertains to all of the years from Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again because these symbols of war, civil unrest, famine, death, they have been daily realities. Think of 2020. Disease spreading across the globe, killing millions of people. Wars, rumors of wars, certainly. Civil unrest, pictures and images of civil unrest that we're all familiar with, some of them happening in our own city. This isn't difficult to imagine. It's daily reality. This is also, as an aside, why it's so difficult. And I think the wrong approach to read Revelation with a newspaper in any generation and say, see, oh, look, here's this. And look, it's happening now. This is specifically related to 
us because every generation could say that. That's the point here. Every generation has seen horrible wars and pestilence and disease and plague and evil and unrest. And it gives us a picture of what it looks like to live between the first and second advent. But it also pretty clearly pertains to the future. A future coming judgment in which by the time, by the time we get to chapter 19 we'll see it, where we'll see while there's been war and famine and death uniquely in the first century throughout human history, the day of the Lord will show these realities to us on a scale never seen before as the last days arrive. There's an already not yet dynamic at work here. So uh, we're meant to see our need for Advent first by recognizing the depth of human frailty and depravity. We just heard in our Advent reading that the Messiah who is to come will cause all swords to be laid down. That is a need that we have for him to come again and do that. So secondly, we're intended to see our need for Advent by recognizing the persecution and vindication of believers. So the depth of human frailty and depravity and the persecution and vindication of believers. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of the souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When the fifth seal is broken, we see these souls of people who've been killed for their faithful witness. They bore witness to the truth of Christ with their very lives. They did not fear their life even unto death. This is how faithful they were. They cry out to God for vindication because they've been killed by these earth dwellers. I I wish um, I had more time to go into some of this. So earth dwellers, again, just by way of reminder, it's always, always, always in Revelation. Anytime we see those who dwell upon the earth, it's always... um, Talking about the wicked, those who have rejected God, non-believing people who've said, he is, God is my enemy, right? Um, the wicked, those who stand against God, those who stand against the people of God. Because remember, in Revelation, it's very black and white. You either have the mark of Christ or the mark of Satan. You know, you're either a believer or you're not. You're either with God or an enemy of God. And that's what we see in these themes. And so they cry out for vindication. And while I think this tends to get something of a back, backlash from people, thinking maybe it isn't a very Christian prayer, because it sounds like they're calling out for revenge, this is actually a really good thing to cry out. We see it in the Psalms. We actually see it alluded to in a lot of the teachings of Christ. And the reason is, that, think about this in, in the context. These souls are now in the presence of the One on the throne. And in His presence, seeing this mighty One, their expectation is justice. And as we've said before, everyone today wants to talk about justice, but nobody wants to talk about the justice of an almighty God against human sin. And we all want to talk about justice, but we don't want to talk about justice as it relates to a holy God and wicked people, unholy people. And yet that's the very thing that these believers are concerned with, seeing His holiness, noting the patience of the Lord and withholding judgment up to this point. But the emphasis here is on the persecution they've faced. They're each given a white robe. They've been victorious in the face of persecution, told to find rest. And again, I think the symbolism here pertains in a very unique way to first century Christians that are being killed for confessing Christ increasingly. Like some of the churches that John has already addressed, as we've talked about, have had members of their churches 
killed by Rome for not worshiping the emperor, right? For not holding to um, the, the ideals of the culture of the day, of the imperial cult. So I think this is an increasing reality when this was written. But it's also something that's been true around the world ever since the death and resurrection of Christ that gives us a picture of, again, what it's like to live between the two advents. More Christians have been martyred in the last 200 years than the prior 1,800 years combined, and that's just reality, including what happened in Rome. But again, I, I think we also see something uniquely future here as the believers in question have the end in view, and we'll see more of what I'm talking about the next two weeks. Okay, but in all of it, we see our need for Advent by recognizing the persecution and vindication of believers. Jesus tells us this world will give us trouble, and yet he gives us his peace, and we need his peace if we're to stand faithful and true. Jesus tells his disciples that some of them will stretch out their hands and die, but he speaks to them of their eternal reward with him, their hope with him, and we need that hope, right? What you believe about your future is the most formative thing about you. It's going to shape how you react when persecution comes along. There's no way apart from your hope in Christ that you're going to stand faithful to the end. And so our need for him to grant us this peace and this hope in every age is greater than we know. And that brings us to the third and final reality. We see our need for Advent by recognizing the only means of avoiding God's wrath and judgment in the end. The only means of avoiding God's wrath and judgment. In the end, verses 12 through 17, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when sh- sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from the face of him who's seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? Again, and that last question, who can stand? That phrase is... That frames everything uh, for, for this chapter. This is, the, this is the main point. Who can stand? Apart from Christ, the answer is no one. No one. And again, here I think we see what are pretty clear references to things happening in the first century. The, the first century Ju- Jewish historian Josephus, writing about the Jewish wars, routinely described Jews and Christians fleeing into catacombs and caves for their lives. For instance, he writes this, And on this day, the Romans slew all the multitudes that appeared openly, but on the following days, they searched the hiding places. They fell upon those who were underground and in the caverns. He also writes that in the wake of the smoke from all the destruction in the Jewish wars by the Roman army, the sky was blacked out, the sun was blacked out, firestone, ashes fell from the sky. So some of this, again, likely to first century ears is reminding them of first century events, and yet there are those today, presently, who while they may not recognize it, still hide from the wrath of God. They want nothing to do with Him. And this clearly points forward to a future coming of the Lord. In fact, I think that's what it's primarily doing. When anyone who stands apart from Him will be 
judged and there will be no hiding from it. And this isn't because God is some moral monster who, you know, unfairly just can't seem to satisfy his itch for wrath. It's because humanity is so deserving. The problem isn't simply that, you know, they're standing or that they're in the presence of a holy God. The problem is that they're in the presence of a holy God and not knowing him. And the reason they don't know him is because they've turned against him. They've claimed him as their enemy. They hate him. They don't want eternity with him. And so in the end, God just gives people what they want. If you want to be your own Lord and Savior, God gives you that for all eternity. That's hell and judgment. If you want Him to save you, if you you call Him Lord and Savior, He gives you that for all eternity. That's the new heavens, the new earth, the consummated kingdom. But He just gives you what you want. The idea, though, in this text at least, the idea that, oh, God's just being mean. You know, these people, certainly... They would throw themselves on his mercies. No, look at what happens in the text. They still tremble. Like, God gave them what they want, but they still tremble, not in repentance at all, but just wanting to get as far from him as possible. Far from God as humanly possible. They would rather have the mountains fall upon them than to come face to face with this God. And so our need for Christ to be known by him and therefore to know him, to be loved by him, and therefore to love him. That need is desperate for all of humanity. And there's just simply no possible way, hear me now, there's no possible way of preparing our hearts for Advent without seeing how much we desperately needed him to come bear the burden of our sin and guilt so that we can have life with him now that goes on forever, so that we could throw ourselves on his mercies, so that we could avoid his wrath. And there's no possible way of preparing our hearts for Advent without seeing how much we need Him to come again to put all things to rights. And He will. December 2nd, 1928, first Sunday of Advent, 1928, Dietrich Bonhoeffer delivered a sermon in Barcelona. And this is what he said. He said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Read that again. Celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. This is Revelation 6. It should trouble us in soul that this is the consequence of sin. It should trouble us in soul that this is the depth of our depravity. We should see ourselves as poor and and imperfect and in desperate need of God's grace. And we look forward to something greater yet to come. But his coming is only good news if we recognize our depravity. If we see that from it, we can, through his work, not through ours, be given the restoration of a white robe. By that restoration, we can remain faithful. Through that future hope, we can stand faithful. And that in the end, he is our only hope. He is our only hope of escaping wrath and judgment. See, not only is it not unjust for God to bring judgment, but this is, this is, this God actually took all of the judgment, all of the judgment that his people deserved upon his own shoulders. He experienced it, right? You say, oh, it's so unjust for God to pour out judgment. He took it. He took an eternity's worth of judgment upon his shoulders so that we could have life. And he holds it out to you. This isn't a God who's giving out judgment but unwilling to receive it. He received it for us despite the fact that we deserve it and he did not. He received the wrath of God for us that we might escape the wrath in the end. And so when the Apostle Paul says, 
at the table that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, he means it. We need this gospel reminder daily until he comes. We need to proclaim this to our hearts until he comes. Christ will come again and we must be prepared. How can we be prepared? Recognize our need and throw themselves on our on his mercies. We're going to see more of that in Revelation and Advent this year. There's no way to avoid it. Like this really sets the stage by saying like how do we approach Revelation in a season of Advent? By each week coming being ready to hear about how much we need Christ. Throwing ourselves upon his mercies. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. He has ransomed us by his body broken, his blood shed, and we will proclaim this ransom until the day he returns to bring it to completion.